Bibles and we'll get started on the next Beatitude. We've been working through Matthew chapter 5. And Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of Jesus' inaugural sermon. It's the first recorded sermon that he gave us in his word. He probably preached before, but this is where the first sermon comes forth. And he has these statements that are kind of introductory. The Beatitudes, we call them. They're not called that in our Bibles. That's just what we've come to call them over the years. Because that word blessed in Latin is beatus. And we just changed Beatitudes. And now we're talking about the blessings. The statements that Jesus makes as he begins to have his public ministry. And if there's one thing that's been underlying every statement. If there's any underlying point or overarching idea that we find here it's that you can't be truly right with God and not be radically changed it's impossible you probably know someone who's claimed to be a Christian maybe at one point in their life they raised their hand or checked a box or walked an aisle and and they said they were a Christian and their life didn't really show anything and that brought into your mind some questions like are you really a Christian and you would be right to question it because here, ever, every time Jesus says something, it's really clear that the people who are God's people are different from the people who are not. There's a radical distinction. You can't say, Jesus is claiming here, you can't claim to be a follower of Christ and enjoy salvation and treat it as if it's a ticket to heaven that you put in your back pocket. It makes no difference to you in this life. You're just hoping one day it'll get you out of hell and get you into heaven. And Jesus is killing that idea. Every statement is another nail into the coffin that lays to rest that idea that you can be a Christian without having your life changed. It's impossible. And so he's saying that God's people are going to stand out from the world. They're going to be different from the rest of the people in this world who are still outside of the grace of God and outside of Christ. God's people are to stand out like light in a dark room, as he will be saying here in a few sentences, 14, verse 14, you're the light of the world. We're going to stand out. Jesus is claiming if you've had God's grace in your life, there's going to be symptoms of salvation. And Jesus is showing each of us what those symptoms are so you know if you're truly saved. If you ever have struggled with questions of assurance, this is a great place for you to read through and say, do I really have these marks? Am I poor in spirit? And do I mourn? Am I really meek? Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Am I merciful towards people? He goes through each one. Am I pure in heart? Was what we looked at last week. And we come to verse 9. You can read along right there in your Bibles. In verse 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers. So there's the next mark. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Another mark of salvation that is etched upon the soul of every Christian is that you are a peacemaker in a world filled with conflict and chaos. If you could imagine a stormy sea, the peacemaker or the Christian or maybe the church would be that island of perfect serenity. We are those who are called to live differently than the rest of the world, which is enmeshed in conflict constantly. Did you guys turn on the news recently? Is there any international peace? I know we have talks of peace treaties and disarmament and 
uh, denuclearization and those types of things are being thrown around and we're hoping that maybe we'll be able to have some peace in the, our nations. Um, but I read a statistic, I heard a statistic that all the treaties that have ever come from the pen of man, you know how many of them have been kept? This many. None. In other words, peace is in some ways a mirage. Something we tell ourselves. None of these things have ever worked. One guy said, peace is that glorious moment in history when everyone stops to reload. Because we're always hoping for peace, but it never is a reality. There's not economic peace in our world. We might have some people who enjoy the benefits of having lots of money, but across the country there are also people who have none and they're struggling through life and they're working in the way they can, but they are not able to live in any other state than an impoverished one. There's no peace here in our, our nation. You've been seeing it on the news. Think of the demonstrations. Think of the riots on the freeways. Think of the walk-ins or the sit-ins or the walk-outs. The things that are going on in university classrooms. There's not peace there. The rallies will prove that. I like the saying that we're one nation under God. I wish it were true. It is clear that we're not united under God. This nation is not experiencing peace and harmony. There's not peace here in our nation. You say, well, what about the family? The family should be the place where peace is really experienced. Well, that's another issue. Is there peace even in the family? I know some families are experiencing the beauty and the harmony of peace. But if you read some of the statistics, they don't bode well. Some statistics say that 40, 40 to 50% of marriages are ending in divorce. Some say, in response to that statistic, they say, oh, well, it's getting better. It's not, it's not as bad as it used to be. Well, the reason for that is because people are getting married less, and they're cohabitating more, and they're breaking up five years later, but it doesn't count as a statistic because they never got married in the first place. And these are leading to broken homes, which leads to confused and hurting children. Even our children, there's not much peace. Uh, in the lives of these innocent ones that we want to bring up and the love and the admonition of the Lord often are in themselves in turmoil. An article came out last year in The, uh, the Atlantic uh, speaking about this surge that we're experiencing in depression amongst teenagers and, and the, the increase in uh, unhappiness that we're seeing. And the writer made this observation that our children are coddled more than any other generation has ever walked the earth. I mean, we are living in the, the age of safety with our kids. I mean, we get a little concerned when our kids go out in the backyard and no one sees them. I'm sure some of you had the freedom to explore your whole backyard, front yard, whole city by yourself when you grew up. I know my dad has told stories of growing up in the San Fernando Valley and had say, I'm out and I'd be gone for hours and wouldn't come home till dark and I can't even imagine doing that with my kids. It's like our kids are, now we're trying to be extra careful and keep our kids extra safe. And what this writer said is that even though we're trying to take more care and trying to keep, keep them safe and we're trying to raise the safest generation ever, there's actually more turmoil arising in the hearts of our kids. He, he mentioned social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, all these things that our teenagers are using. And he says, teens are actually spending less time outdoors, more time in their house because they can connect with everyone on their phones now. 
And so they'll stay in their rooms all day and they'll text and they'll send pictures back and forth and all that stuff. And the author concluded, this is what he said, listen to this startling statistic. He said, as teens have started spending less time together, they have become less likely to kill one another and more likely to kill themselves. In 2011, for the first time in 24 years, the teen suicide rate was higher than the teen homicide rate. In other words, you could try to protect your kid as much as you want. You could lock them up in a room. You could give them all the comforts of the world. And still, the inner turmoil that they'll experience is enough to draw attention and be a startling, scary statistic. We want peace, and we can try to create peace. We try to seek peace in various ways. We can sing about peace. We could desire peace. We could talk about peace. And you could turn on the radio. You might hear a song about giving peace a chance. Or that if you could imagine all the people living life in peace. And so we can sing these songs. We enjoy these songs. And yet peace seems to be something we can't even figure out. It's not in the nations. It's not in the economy. It's not in the, our America. It's not in the family. It's not in the home. I'm speaking in general, and maybe this hits home for you. Are you experiencing peace? Is your life filled with peace? Are the relationships you have relationships of peace? It makes sense why Jesus would say that peacemakers are the light of the world. Because the whole world doesn't get peace. And they don't know what peace is. But the people who know their God should have a different understanding of peace and understanding of what it means and a desire to bring peace. And so this chaotic world and this confused world, as crazy as it is, we Christians are peacemakers, which means we're the candle in the dark. We're the island in the storm. We're the safe place where chaos reigns all around. And you might be asking yourself, I think it's an appropriate question, well, why all the chaos? Why all the conflict? Why all the quarrels? What's going on? And I would have you turn to James chapter 4. You got your Bibles. Now, you were in Matthew. Now, turn over and go to James chapter 4. And I think this is one of those passages that reminds you how practical the Scriptures are. Because they tell you the answer to that question. Why are there so many quarrels? Why are there so many fights? Why are there so much conflict? And this is, this is helpful for all of us, because if you're one that has experienced conflict in your own life, tension in your own life, drama, well, let's get to the root of it. The Bible helps us there. You go to James chapter 4, and he's going to ask that same question. In verse 1, James asks, What causes quarrels and f- causes fights among you? Well, what's the cause? What's the underlying root cause of these quarrels and fights that we are having? And then he goes on, he says, isn't that this? Here it is, guys. Here's the answer to that question. Why is there no peace? Here it is. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You guys see that? What's the cause? James says, it's passions. You got these passions within you. Verse 2, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet which means you have a strong desire for something someone else has. You want it so badly, you covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Just pause right there. You want a simple and profound answer to any fight you've had, any conflict you've experienced, whether it's in nations, whether it's in family, whether it's in marriages, whether it's in friendships, whether it's in neighborhoods. What's the conflict root? What's the core issue? It is the passions of the human heart. 
It's that we have desires that get unbridled, out of control, and we want something, we can't have it, and so that makes us angry, it makes us lash out, and we respond with a conflict. I think this is helpful. You might even want to write this down because it'll help you in the future. It's helped me. Uh, that The conflict goes like this. It starts with a desire. You say, how's a conflict come to be? It starts with a desire. That's the first thing. Always have your desires in check. Desires aren't bad, but all conflict starts with a desire. And what happens then? It morphs, it mutates into, after that, a demand. I want something, and then I start to convince myself that I not only want it, I need it. And you know, it's very dangerous swatters when we go from a desire and we call it a need. Because once we start calling it a need, we get, if anyone's going to hold me back from getting what I need, they're in my way, and I need to get rid of them. Now it doesn't feel like you're just not letting me have a preference. Now it feels like you're uh, denying me something that's necessary for my survival, like oxygen or water. And, and now I've got to do something about this. And it starts with our desires. And then our desires turn into demands. That's the second one. Write that down. We've got desires. Those desires turn into demands because our wants become needs. And then what happens in part three? Part three is we begin to punish. I, I wanted something. I demanded something, and I didn't get it, and now I declare war. I mean, you go, go, go ask yourself, what was the last conflict you had? What was the last issue that came up in, in a relationship? And is it not traced back to you wanting something, not getting it, demanding it, still not getting it, and say, I need to do something about this, and maybe you lashed out, or maybe you clammed up, because we all do things differently, right? Some of us, are, the way we're treated, uh, if we're treated poorly, we'll respond differently. We'll, we'll punish differently. We all have desires. We turn them into demands. And then when we punish because we didn't get what we wanted, sometimes it's open war and sometimes it's cold war. It's smoldering war. Sometimes we blow up. Maybe you're the type that if there's an argument, you're going to be the one that's yelling and screaming, or maybe the one that's vocalizing and verbalizing your issues. And there's going to be some of you that kind of take the opposite road. You clam up. You say, the way I'm going to get back at you is by not saying anything to you. You say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. And you know you're not fine. I'm fine. How many of you have done that one before? Some of you don't blow up, but you clam up. I've heard it put this way. you got turtles and you got skunks. The turtles put themselves into the shell and they don't want to deal with it. They clam up. They're, they're not blowing up. They're clamming up. They don't want to deal with the conflict. In fact, the way they're dealing is they're running away. They're, they're shutting themselves in. And then you got the skunks that make the whole place stink. They're just going to make everyone know. They're going to make it hurt for everyone. They're going to be loud and boisterous. They're going to go on the attack. This is why we have desires. They turn into demands, and then we want to punish. If we don't get what we want, we call our wants needs. Our needs become something we think we have to have for our survival. When we don't get them, we're going to get the person who we think is holding us back from the things we need. This is all to say, where does conflict come from? It comes from your heart. It comes from our hearts. The fallen human heart has these unbridled passions, unbridled desires, wants that we have, and when they're not kept in check, they get out of ordinary, they become mutated into demands, and then we go to war with the people who get in the way of the things we say we need. And so that's why there's no peace. 
It's not a government issue. It's not systems issue. It's not structures. It's because we are all sinners. And if we can admit that, now we can actually move toward a solution because the solution is given to us in the Word of God. Now let's ask this question. Well, what is peace? What does it mean to have peace? And you say, well, if conflict starts in the heart, then doesn't that mean peace starts in the heart? This is what peace is. Peace is a condition of your heart. It starts there where my heart is single-mindedly devoted to God. Now, in the Beatitudes, each statement that Jesus makes, I've been trying to make this clear, is building on the previous one. You remember that? So he's building a case, and each one builds on the previous one. Now, if you remember last week, Jesus taught us, blessed are the pure in heart. And that had two sides. It means not only are you empty of moral filth, but you're filled with a single-minded passion and devotion for God. Both of those things are true in a pure heart. You're, you're empty of the moral slime, and you're filled with desires for righteousness. You're filled with devotion. And then he brings, building on that purity, he starts talking about peace. And so you say, well, what is peace? Well, peace is when the heart is pure, and it's not that the heart has stopped desiring. The heart now desires with a single-minded focus. The heart desires purity, righteousness, holiness, and that's where peace reigns. See, see, follow me here. When your heart is at rest, when your heart is delighting in God, when your heart is not colliding with everyone else who's getting in the way of your heart's desires, like cars on the freeway that are crashing into each other, when your heart is not focused on everyone else getting what, what they're getting and you wanting what they have, but your heart is looking upward to Christ and you're saying, that's my satisfaction, that's my delight, that's my goal, that's my joy. When you have that, you tend to not run into the people next to you. We're satisfied in Christ. See, it's a lot easier to get along with people when you already have everything you want. Right? You already have everything you want in Christ it's really easy to get, every, every, uh, get along with everyone because they're not getting in the way of what you think you need. You already have what you think you need. You have Christ. And so purity, where our hearts are single-mindedly focused on Christ, is the foundation for peace. The psalmist would put it like this. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. What, what that means is this, is that you can't have peace where there's no righteousness. And where righteousness reigns, there will be peace. Where there's no righteousness, there's tension, conflict, drama. Where there's righteousness, there's peace. And so one of the implications of this is that if we want peace, if we want peace, we all ought to pursue first righteousness in our hearts and righteousness in the lives of the people around us. Peace. You could maybe sum it up in a very simple way. Peace is where righteousness reigns. That's what it is. You know, two Jews in Jerusalem, they're going to greet each other. And what word are they going to use? Maybe you know this. They're going to say, Shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace. And what they're saying is not just that they hope no conflict comes into your life. Because peace is more than just the absence of conflict. There's no conflict in a cemetery. You might not want to call that a peaceful place. Peace is referring, shalom is referring to something broader than just no one's firing bolts at one another. It's referring to this 
active righteousness within relationships. It's more than saying, I don't have a problem with you. It's saying, come to the table. Let's enjoy life together. Let's enjoy something together. Let's feast on the righteousness of God together. It's proactive. It's not just calling off the war. It's inviting people to the banquet. Peace is where righteousness reigns. We've got to have peace in our lives. So well, you might go, okay, if that's peace, if peace is where righteousness is reigning, and we ought to have that here, it's, it's, it's when those people say shalom, they're wishing not just for absence of conflict, they're wishing for righteousness to reign and for goodness to reign in their lives, in the fullness of blessing to be experienced. Okay, if that's, now Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Now what he's saying is that God's people will be interested in making peace. That will be a natural inclination of the new life that God's given us. So what does a peacemaker do? I'm going to give you four habits of a peacemaker. Four commitments a peacemaker will make. And here's number one. If I'm at peace with God, this is what I'll do. I will be at war with sin. The peacemaker starts by going to war against his own sin. The peacemaker doesn't start by pointing at everyone else's problems and telling them that they need to fix themselves up. The peacemaker begins by saying, I will start with myself. I will get the log out of my own eye before I try to fix the conflict. I will deal here first. I will start at my own front door. I will work for purity in my life. I will work for righteousness in my life because I don't have the right to call everyone else to peace if my own heart is chaos. I need purity there. In James chapter 3, verse 17, James is talking about divine wisdom. And he says, here's what divine wisdom is like. It's from above, so it's from God, and it's first, listen to this, follow the logic, it's first pure, then peaceable. First, divine wisdom is Purity in your mind, in your heart, in your desires. Single-minded focus to serve the Lord. First, it's pure. And if you have purity, then it's peaceable. You might want to even, you can look at that backwards. If there's no peace, well, there's no purity. And so I begin by going to war with my own sin. I begin by confessing my own issues. I begin by getting the log out of my own eye. I remember hearing a story about two pastors driving back from a conference together and they had gone a few days and they had been together for hours each day and now they're driving home and they had just soaked in so much good teaching about what it means to be a pastor. And in this drive home, they're talking about their churches and they're both pastors of different churches. In In the first one, the first pastor is saying all the different difficulties he's having. Oh, the people aren't responding to my teaching and and they just don't seem to be getting what I'm trying to say. And the vision, no one's grasping on to. It's just really difficult. It's just so hard. I'm not getting anywhere. And, and he's going on and on. And he's complaining a little bit. And finally, after talking for a, a while about his own church, he turns to the other pastor and says, How, how's, your, how's your church doing? And the pastor paused, thought about it. And he says, I know the biggest problem with my church is my own heart. Uh, My first responsibility is to be at peace with God in my own heart. Be at peace and be content with how God has given me this church. I need to be at peace with that. 
And if I sit here and point all the fingers at all the other people, then I'm never going to be a peacemaker because it all will be their fault and I won't do what I can do. See, your first and greatest responsibility, if you want to be a peacemaker, is to start with yourself and your own heart and say, I will work for purity in my own heart, for righteousness in my own heart, for holiness in my own heart. I will confess my sins first. I will be the first to admit guilt. I can't change your heart. You can't change each other's hearts. But you can work for purity in your own heart. Let's be practical. As we move forward together as a church, we want to be a peacemaking community. A beautiful, united, peacemaking, peace-enjoying community. One question you maybe could ask to a friend or a spouse or a church member would be this question. Are there attitudes you notice in my life that get in the way of peacemaking? Are there attitudes that you see in me that are preventing unity? Because it all starts with your own attitude. Here's the second habit of a peacemaker. I will work to be sure that others are at peace with me. So first, I'm going to work to be at peace with God by going to war with my sin. Second thing I'm committed to do is I will work to be sure that others are at peace with me. If you're taking notes, that's number two. I will work for others to be at peace with me. Think of Adam in the Garden of Eden. He was given a job in Genesis chapter 2. He was to work and to keep. It was basically Adam's commission, job, was to cultivate the garden. And if you like to garden, you would know that the gardening requires attention to the soil and to the plants. And when weeds come up, you've got to take care of it. And, and think of your relationships like a garden. And every intruder into that garden that hinders the growth of your garden is an enemy or a conflict or a tension or a sin. See, all of us are called like Adam, not necessarily to cultivate the Garden of Eden, but to cultivate and ensure the beauty of peace in our lives. So Christians are called to cultivate peace in their relationships like you would cultivate a garden. When the weeds of conflict grow, you've got to deal with them. When sins creep in and they're, they're messing with the plants you're trying to grow, you've got to deal with it. You've got to work to make sure that others are at peace with you. Psalm 34, 14. Seek peace and pursue it. Active verbs. Go after it. Romans 12, 18. If it's possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Every person, you're trying as best as you know how, as much as it depends on you, to live peacefully. Romans 14, 19. Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify one another. Seek peace. As much as it depends on us, live peacefully. Let's pursue the things that make for peace. I think our church ought to have a high value on peace. Amen? A high value on unity. Where you are known to be a place where people are getting along and you actually not only love each other because you have to but you like each other because we know that we're in this together and we're committed to one another we got to put a high value on peace imagine succeeding in business and making your millions and getting your perfect career and getting the perfect house to live in and then leaving in your wake broken relationships, broken hearts, and broken people because your life wasn't characterized by peace. Anybody want to go to a church 
that's filled with bickering people who can't get along? Nobody does. It doesn't matter how great the building is or the property is or the music is. If no one gets along, that's no one wants to be there. We're not going to be that church because we need to be peacemakers. In Matthew chapter 5, you can go back there. You were in James. Now you can head back to Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus is a little bit later in his Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking about reconciliation and what to do when there's conflict arising. And in Matthew chapter 5, you get to verse 22 and he's talking about anger which is one of the reasons why we don't have peace with one another. We can get angry because our passions are going out of whack. And if you get to verse 21, Matthew 5, verse 21, Jesus says, If you have heard it said, that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus ups the ante here. It's not just murder, it's anger. You can't get angry with one another. If you do, you're liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire, Jesus. Wow. Raising the stakes. Now listen to this. It gets very practical in verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, in the Jewish context here, if you're going to worship, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Not that you have something against them, but that they have something against you. Leave your gift. Leave your gift there before the altar and go and first be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. You see the underlying principle here is that as we come to worship, what God is concerned is that we're coming with pure hearts and peaceful lives. And what he's saying here is, is if you're not right with God, you're not right with God if you're not right with people. And that you can't have all these broken relationships around you and waltz into the church as if everything's fine with you and God. No, God cares about your relationships. And no, deal with that first. It's a big deal. Reconcile. Then come back and worship the Lord. Sometimes a peacemaker has to say to someone, being proactive and approaching them, saying, are we okay? Anything we need to work something out? And often we'll need to say, will you forgive me? I was inconsiderate. I wasn't thoughtful. Will you forgive me for that? This is what we do. We not only work to make peace in our own hearts, but we're working to make sure everyone's at peace with me. I'm at peace. I make sure that you're in peace with me. This is what Jesus is saying. I want to make sure that others are at peace with me. You want to make sure that everyone in the church is at peace with you. And when those issues come up, you want to be the one who's proactive. I want to show you an example of what could possibly go wrong if we don't do this well. Go to Joshua chapter 22. You go into the Old Testament and here's uh, the Israelites getting ready to go into the promised land. And the, the wars are over. The battles have been fought. Now they're going into Canaan. And there's the tribes that are dividing up the land. And there's few tribes. On one side, they have this one area of the land that they're going to get. And on the other side of the Jordan, there's the other tribes that are going to get their area. 
And what happens in verse 10, if you go to Joshua 22, verse 10, they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there in a, all, uh, by the Jordan an altar of imposing size. So get that. You got Reuben, you got Gad, and you got Manasseh, three tribes on one side of the Jordan. They get all these stones, and they build this massive altar, very noticeable, visible altar. In verse 11, and the people of Israel heard it. So this is the people on the other side. They say, behold, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier land of the Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. Now look at this. You might say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, they thought it was a big deal. Look at verse 10. Or, sorry, verse 12. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war. They're about to go to war over this. Now, I won't spare you all the details. What he's, what's happening here is that the people on Israel thought this altar was going to be built as a false location for worship. They knew that there was just going to be one place of worship. That was what God told them. But they built this altar, and all the people on there said, well, why are you building an altar for? There's only supposed to be one place. And if you build this altar, and you make this an altar of worship, you're violating what God has clearly told us to do. You're violating worship. And so Israel says, we've got to go to war because they're already breaking the law. We've got to go to war with them. So they, they go. And look at verse, verse 17. Actually, look at verse 16. Thus says the whole congregation, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against God, the God of Israel, in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar? Why did you do this? Why did you turn away? You build yourself an altar that wasn't supposed. It's a rebellion against the Lord. Verse 17. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not yet cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole congregation. They're about to go to war. They're about to take up arms. They got their weapons. They're gathered. They're about to go to war because that, those three tribes built a false altar of false worship in direct violation of the revealed word of God. Look at verse 21 now. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh said in their in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, Oh, the mighty one, the God, the Lord, the mighty one, the Lord, he knows... And let Israel itself know, if it was rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us. <laughs> They're saying, if, if we're doing what you think we're doing, yeah, take us out. Kill us all. Uh, if it is rebellion, you know, be done with us, verse 23, for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings, may it be the Lord himself that takes vengeance. Then he clarifies, watch this, no, that's not what we were doing. Why'd you build it? Well, we did it from fear that in time our children might say to our children, Why ha what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? Long story short, they're saying the reason we put these rocks up and the reason we built an altar is so that our children would always remember the faithfulness of God. You had a war about to break out in a nation. You had a civil war. They're about to go to blows. They're about to fight. And you know what would have fixed that problem? You know what would have spared them a lot of heartache and a lot of hassle? You know what? If they just said, hey, why are you building that altar? 
Instead of accusing, they could have been asking. Instead of being quick to anger, they should have been slow to anger and quick to listen. How many wars in our relationships, in our marriages, with our kids, with our friends, could have been prevented because we didn't accuse first and we instead asked some honest questions? Help me understand why you're doing that. Help me know what's your motive in doing this. I see an altar. It looks like you're going to war with God. It looks like you're in violation. But all that would have taken to ease everyone's hearts would have just been saying, hey, why did you do that? This would have clarified everything and no one would have had to go to war. See, if we want to be peacemakers, let's get really practical. I think we need to sell our accusations and buy more honest questions. Let's get rid of jumping quickly to assume we know everything about what that person's doing. We understand right at the heart of their motives. Let's not act like we do. Instead, let's be people who seek to ask questions. Hey, help me understand your heart in this. Help me understand why you're doing this. And if you need to talk things through, that's much better than just accusing and going to war, isn't it? See, the heart of a peacemaker says, before I assume I know everything you're doing, before I assume I know the whole situation, before I'm going to make all these assumptions about your heart and your motives, I'm going to first come to you and I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to ask you some good questions. And now we can come to understand each other and maybe we can lay down our arms and we don't have to go to war like those Israelites. Once they understood that the reason they were building the altar was to help their kids follow the Lord, there's no reason to fight over that. A peacemaker says, I will work to make sure that others are at peace with me. Which means I'm going to be a problem solver, not a problem creator. I'm going to be someone who seeks peace and asks questions. And I'm going to be slow to accuse And if I have to be the one that gets defrauded like the meek do, we talked about a few weeks ago, I will be the one that is defrauded rather than stir up strife. That's the heart of a peacemaker. So a peacemaker is at war with their own sin. A peacemaker is working to make sure that people are at peace with me. Here's the third commitment of the peacemaker. You can jot this down. Number three, I work to help others live peaceably with one another. So it's not enough for me to have peace with God. I want that peace in my heart. I want that. It's not enough for me to have peace with every person in the congregation. I want that. But I also want everyone here to be at peace with one another. That's the heart of a peacemaker. God says that His people love truth and peace. God's people ought to love peace. Experience peace. Work for peace. And everyone might be fine with me, but if people in the congregation aren't fine with each other... And we got work to do in helping them. Again, not jumping to accuse or not acting like we know all the problems and we know exactly how to fix them, but to come in and help. When I was a 24-year-old punk pastor at a church in Canoga Park, one day there was an elder of that church and his daughter-in-law that were unable to get along. They had both been serving the music ministries. I was in charge of it. And this guy's my grandfather's age, the elder. And they couldn't get along. And I just asked, hey, can we, the three of us get together? So we got together, and they would not look each other in the eye. They sat across from me. 
They won't even look at each other. They won't even speak to one another. There are some deep issues going on there. And we talked, and I said, I'm assuming that we're all saved. We all have the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit works toward unity. And so we have hope here that there is a solution that God has for us, but we need to be willing to listen and learn and repent and change and, and all that. And after some conversations, and, and after some confession, at the end of that time, they looked each other in the eye, and they confessed sin to one another. And they asked for forgiveness. And tears just started flowing from both of their, uh, their faces, just falling down, and they embraced each other. As a 24-year-old guy, I was just asking questions, and they figured out, and it was the Spirit who really worked in that situation that brought them back together. And I thought, how beautiful. And what a picture. There are going to be times that there's conflict in this church, right? Because when a bunch of sinners get together, conflict happens. That's a natural law of fallen humanity. When we go together, and we do life together, and we serve together, there's going to be conflict. But when the Spirit is present and we're seeking righteousness, we will have to learn how to work it out. And it is beautiful when people can sit down together and ask questions and come to understanding and confess and forgive. Because that makes the gospel look real. That shows it. It proves it. Our unity proves Jesus' reality. This is exactly what Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. You don't have to turn there. But Jesus is praying and he said, I'm praying for my people that they may be perfectly one. Why? That the world may know. You want to be a, a missionary and have the nations come to know the God we serve, you know how it starts, is that we actually love one another with a perfect unity so the world may know the God we serve. It starts right here. It starts being the people God has called us to be and loving the people. And when the unity of the church is happening, it's real and it's vibrant, it's sending a message, and that message is Jesus is real, the gospel is true. It saves and it reconciles. And so we want to be people who help others live peaceably with one another. We want to be that church that is willing to say, hey, you got a broken marriage, come here. There's 10 people willing to jump in and help you counsel yourselves through this. you got a struggling relationship, come here. We're going to be able to help you through this. We're going to go back to Scripture. We're going to ask a lot of questions. We're going to depend on the Spirit to move. And that will prove the reality of our gospel. That it does save, that it does reconcile, that it does change people. I want all of us to say, I'm, I'm a peacemaker. Because if you've been called by God to salvation, you've been called by God to peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers. We're all peacemakers. It's not a different category of Christian. All of us are called to this. You say, well, what do I need to do to be a peacemaker? Three things real quick. You could pray for peace. Paul told Timothy, pray for the kings who are in authority. Pray for, uh, that we might live a peaceful and quiet life. Pray for peace in your church. Pray for peace in your family. Pray for, pray for peace in your country. Pray for peace in the world. You could pray for peace. Here's a second thing you could do. You could help people set their minds on God. People are in conflict. You say, what am I to do? Well, one of the things you could do is help bring their attention to God. Isaiah 26.3 You keep him in perfect peace. Who? Whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. You want to help people come to peace? Help them think about God. 
Help them get outside of just thinking about themselves. Help them think about who their God is and what the promises He's made and what the things He's doing and the, how trustworthy He is. That will help people have peace. You could be praying for peace. You could help people, think, help people think about God and His promises. Here's another thing. What Paul did in Philippians 4, there were two women in the church and they were disagreeing and Paul said, I entreat Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. There's a third thing we could do. We could entreat people to agree. So you need to be praying for people to have peace. You need to be helping people set their minds on the things of God. You can then even ask them, implore them, please just get along. Agree with one another. we got a greater purpose than to fight. All of you are peacemakers. So you could be praying now. And when that person calls you and they're in a, they're in a bind or they're in a broken relationship, help them set their minds on God. Help them agree with one another. Here's the last thing a peacemaker does. I'm at war with my own sin. I'm making sure everyone's okay with me. I'm helping other people get along because it's a beautiful thing when the church is getting along. But lastly, and let's make sure we don't miss this, a peacemaker helps others make peace with God. The fundamental need in in humanity is God. The fundamental problem is sin and the fundamental need is God to fix us and the Bible says that God is not a God of confusion he's a God of peace the Bible says that the fruit of the spirit is love joy and peace God gives us pure hearts new hearts so that we can have peace people need God that's what they need they need to be reconciled to God And I think one of the things Jesus is getting at when he says peacemaker is kind of the same thing as evangelism. It's helping people know who they are, who God is, and how to be right with him. We all are called to be peacemakers in the sense that if you encounter someone who's not at peace with God, they're enemies of God, you have the good news of the gospel to help them make peace with God. What application does this mean for us? It means we all need to know the good news enough to share it with one another, enough to share it with people who need it. You are all called to be ambassadors for Christ. You're all called to take the message of reconciliation and bring it to people. My family, uh, every once in a while, we'll play a game called Telephone. Any of you played that game growing up? You sit in a circle, you have one statement, and you say it, and it goes around and around, and it goes around, and then it comes back to the last person, and then that last person says what they heard, and it doesn't match up at all with the first statement. It's got lost in translation all along the way. And, well, the gospel, that happens with generation to generation. And each generation will teach the generation that comes after them the the gospel. And then that generation will come up and they'll know the gospel and they'll teach it to the next one. And there are times throughout history when the gospel game of telephone, from generation to generation, the gospel gets lost. It has happened and is a travesty because entire generations go to church and they're very religious and the gospel's not really being taught them. Well, I don't want ours to be a church that ever loses the gospel. And the way we ensure that we don't lose the gospel, that we're all able to be peacemakers, is that we all know it. We all can explain it. I like explaining it in four words. Who's God? Who are we? Who's Christ? What's the response? God, man, Christ response. I was at the park yesterday, and I met a guy, and we're, we're, uh, our kids are playing together, and it turns out they have three girls and one boy. 
So we start talking, and their boy, I go, when's he born? October, that's when Jack was born. So what day? October 6th, that's the same birthday. So we start talking. And it gets to why we moved out here, and we're telling him about this church, and, and I start asking him what he believes, and he tells me that he believes we're all God, and, and God is everything, and God is everywhere. And, and one of the things he said is that he had some advice for some churches, so you know we could take this. He said, instead of getting donuts out in the lobby, churches need to start putting like kale and other healthy foods. I said, that's heresy. Take it back. And, and so, but he had these great ideas for us to help us, but he's, he's sharing all these, these things, and and in my mind, I'm thinking, uh, here's what we, I got to tell them what we believe. So I go, God, man, Christ response in my mind. And I start telling them, who is God? God is holy. God created everything. He owns everyone. And God made you. And he made you in his image. But you, you know, you've, you've fallen. You haven't lived exactly like God has called you. That's called sin. Uh, humanity has fallen. Now I'm talking about man. We're all fallen. I don't have anything better than you. We're, just, we're all fallen. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And then I move on to talking about Christ. But God, in his amazing love, sent his son, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. And he lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross in payment for all our sins. And he rose again from the dead, and he's alive right now. And then I got to the response, and you right now can be reconciled to God. You can have forgiveness of sins if you trust him. You give your whole life to him. Jesus will save you. He'll forgive you. He'll redeem you. And he'll welcome you one day into his heavenly home. You'll be adopted forever into the family of God. Well, if he didn't believe it. We kept talking. We exchanged numbers. And I asked if he ever wanted to get together and, and maybe read through the Gospel of Mark or, or talk more about these things. We should. And we texted a little bit afterwards. And um, who knows? Maybe the story is just beginning. Pray for Paul if you think about it. We've got to be peacemakers. People who help people get right with God. That's everybody's role and everybody's responsibility. We all need to know the message of reconciliation because we're peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. At peace in our own hearts. Making sure others are at peace with us. Making sure others are getting along with each other. And making sure others are right with God by giving them the gospel. And the blessing, he says there, is that blessed are the peacemakers. Why? They shall be called sons of God. Let's wrap up with this. This is a powerful statement that he makes. He doesn't say they're children of God. He says they're sons of God. And there's a small distinction that's made there. When you're talking about someone who's a child, you're talking about a position. Someone who could be adopted could be a child. But when you're talking about a son, you're talking about character. You're talking about who they are. It's one thing to say Jack's my child. It's another to say he's my son. When I'm saying my child, I'm saying he's, well, he's part of the family. When I'm saying my son, I'm saying he takes after me. And what God is saying to each and every one of us, as we live out what it means to be a peacemaker, he's not just calling you a child. He says, you're like me. That's my boy or that's my daughter. They're acting out the same characteristics and with the same attitudes as their heavenly father. Listen, church, God loves his children. He loves us. He loves us tremendously. He takes delight in us. The Bible says he sings over us with joy when we come into him with salvation. 
This is an amazing reality. And when you start living out the peacemaking in your life, with your relationships, with your neighbors, with people who are broken, and you're helping them, God looks down in like that and he says, I'm a God of peace. My son is the prince of peace. My kingdom will be a kingdom of peace. And right, that, now, right now, they're my son. They're my daughter. They're acting just like me because God has acted to make peace in the world. The Son of God has come into the world making peace by the blood of his cross, Colossians 1. Peacemaking is our calling. Peacemaker is how we reflect the peace uh, that God brings to the world. We are called to be peacemakers. A question I want to leave you with is this. In this dark, confused, chaotic world, how are you making peace? Is your heart at peace with God? If not, repent and come to trust Him and be at peace with Him and He will bring that heart of purity and peace into your life. Are your closest relationships, maybe you could spend some time this afternoon asking this question to the people who are closest to you, are are we okay? Is there peace here? Can we work together to bring peace into these relationships? Maybe one of the things you could do is remember someone that comes to mind that maybe you're not at peace with. There's some forgiveness that needs to happen and some reconciliation. Well, maybe as a response to this text, we become a peacemaker and we dive into the mess of that and we say, we're going to work for peace, whatever the cost. It costs Jesus his shed blood to make peace with mankind. And no matter what cost it may cost us to make peace, We should be willing to pay it because as we live the life of a peacemaker, we are called sons of God. We are like our Father. And what a joy to know he looks down on that with a smile as we imitate him, the ultimate peacemaker. Let's close in prayer. So Lord, we know that we are woefully inadequate for this task. Um, We're not equipped apart from your spirit. And so, Lord, I want to be the voice that speaks for all of us right now. Lord, we confess our failures here. We confess where we've let discord fester. We confess where we've begun to act like that turtle who clams up or like that skunk who blows up. We confess that we haven't been great at peacemaking. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for you to now to give us grace to change. And Father, we thank you that all the grace we need has been given to us already. And all the power is ours in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit's power that now resides within us. Lord, we don't have to remain in conflict or drama or tension in our lives we can be peacemakers and so lord we ask for your help and we thank you for guaranteeing that there will be one day that there will be perfect peace forever we look forward to that day in jesus name amen